I think we should start. Okay. Yeah, actually, we got a few more listeners. Like three? Yeah. And we were featured in this one thing. Yeah, my mom got internet connection last night. Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not funny. Welcome to uh, the podcast of the plants and of the pipettes. What the shit is happening here? Yoram has made me a gin and tonic and he put cucumber in and he's like cut the cucumber into bizarre wedges. Um, yeah. Who does that? Me, apparently. <laughs> I... You should lightly shave and or slice them. Okay. And I had no idea what to do. Like, I was just like... Ooh. <laughs> this is how I would give cucumber to my son so he can try food. Because mm. it's like... can easy, easily hold it. It's like multitasking so where it's you a, it's can a cut gin- some for him and you at the same time. <laughs> it's a gin and tonic for babies. Yeah. Yeah. Don't give your babies gin and tonic. They get way too fancy, way too early. Like they should start with a beer. No, and yeah, they in Germany, like, yes, in Australia, it's like um, goon. We call it. It's it's really cheap white wine. There was one <laughs> that was called Fruity Lexia, and I don't think anybody who speaks the English language knows what a Lexia is. But it's something fruity, or maybe it's not normally fruity, and that's why we need the like adjective that this one is a fruity kind of Alexia. <laughs> Um, and it was like, it's a, it's a white wine that comes in a, um, an aluminium bladder inside a a cardboard box. So you get this like, like about half the size of, of the cardboard box that is for A4 paper, you know, this like, Mm -hmm. and then that's your, your wine box. And then inside there's like an alu bladder. And then like, when you finish the wine, you get to blow it up and like, I don't know, throw it at people. (laughs) Um, and that's really classy and that's that's basically the way because alcohol is very expensive in Australia so that's like the most alcohol for the least dollars like the the conversion most rate most bang for the buck yeah wine is a bit like higher than yeah. the beers but then it's also like still cheap <laughs> and then you add like usually if you're super classy you like make a punch so you add like um a, a tin of fruit in there on top and like <laughs> some more terrible vodka or something I'm really <laughs> happy I grew up on <sighs> cheap beer for like five euros a box of beer and then just get yeah. shit faced on that i think it's because like that's why in australia we never have this like classy like like you start drinking some beer and then you take some or you just go from like not drinking to like being completely off our face smashed and just like like it's like the vomiting kind of drinking as well like if you're drinking this kind of cheap shitty wine you're gonna have a hangover maybe not because you're like too young but like you're gonna yeah. be sick at some point yeah um <laughs> I'm always very happy to get these insights into your culture, Tegan. <laughs> In fairness, I didn't really drink. So I, I never drank when I was younger. And then I kind of started with the gin and tonic because I'm a very classy lady. And yeah. my my first supervisor made a really mean gin and tonic. So that was kind of my... <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're bo- just at your home right now. We're both sitting on white horses right now. That's how classy you are. This Man's is a, you a don't unicorn. Even have, you don't even have chairs. You just have white horses <laughs> roaming around. Is that around. classy? I don't know. I, I'm working class. I have no idea. I think you need to hire somebody to clean up the shit if it's like horses are only classy as long as somebody else is dealing with them, right? And you can yeah. just like... If you just like ride on them into the party and then uh, get off and then somebody else takes care of the horse and you can just... Like, but there, there is something like chairs. the classier you are, the more likely you are to wear like an entirely white outfit. That's the thing, I think. Yeah. It's implying that you have like 
complete control over any fluids that come out of your body. And also um, all of the surroundings, like there's nothing that could get you dirty around you because you don't do any of the dirty work. You don't do the cooking, the cleaning, mm. childcare. You're nothing. never making like a, a blue native gel and then you try and pour out the kamasi and it just gets all over your favorite t-shirt. That like I never mean, happens. And one place would be good in the lab to wear white clothes is whenever you work with bleach because that's like, I messed up so many clothes of mine with bleach. When From, I, really? Yeah, I'm, I'm not at the, at the lab. Um, at the... Um, during the research time but before i had a student job and we were doing these affimatrix machines that are like these these microarrays, these chip machines where like yeah it's a it's a method it's an outdated method nowadays with ngs yeah, now you use like sequencing instead. yeah but back then when you couldn't sequence everything and you had to look for like some specific spots then uh, on the dna then this was the biggest uh, thing in the world and um, yeah, these machines needed weekly cleaning, and that was my part, my student job. And the cleaning was done with bleach. Like, Oi, I, bleach boy, get <laughs> in here! <laughs> and I had to prepare liters of uh, like uh, watered down bleach solution, and then like pump it through the machines, and then collect all the waste bottles, and then like pump them with water and so on. It was t- it it took a whole day, um, and I ruined so many clothes there. Like. I do like my my lab coat has these like two or three really distinct holes like it's burned all the way through the lab coat which is you know it's like it's quite thick like yeah it's, cotton yeah, I want it's to say thick cotton I think and I don't know how I did it which is kind of concerning right like yeah. I don't think I work with anything poisonous no the the what I learned during my my studies was that um, there's like some acids especially sulfuric acid. Um, that doesn't immediately burn a hole in your coat. It just sort of stays there. And when it gets hydrated again during the washing, then it makes the hole. Mm. So many people, they had no holes during their practical courses. Then they went home, washed their coat uh, because we had to buy our own coats and take them home, which is also like, not the Terrible safest thing. Idea. But it's it's Berlin where we're poor. Yeah, um, guys, don't wash your lab coat in your washing machine with your underwear. Yeah. <laughs> not ideal. Um, and then suddenly you, you take them out of the washing machine and you have a couple of holes in there. And uh, that might have what happened to your lab coat. I mean, I'm more biologist than chemist. So I was going with like moths, like big moths, like maybe genetically modified moths, maybe like terrified, like the moths from Mars or like GM moth. Yeah, like GMO. Okay, guys, 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 GMO, but like the MO and then TH, like GM moth. G moth. I think that's, I, I don't know. G moth just sounds like gangster moth, which is a whole different G-moth. problem. <laughs> <laughs> the OG moth. Um. Uh, okay, welcome to Plants and Pipettes. This is a podcast where we normally talk about plants and pipettes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so. 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 Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you how you've been, but I don't know. Do, do we want to talk about it? We want to talk about like your last weekend or do we do that in a different episode? I don't maybe? think like my state of mind. I think last time I was saying that I was like going between like seesawing between terror and like extreme tiredness based mm-hmm. on like I'm, I'm, I've got a new job now guys or like I have a new job conditional of whether I can get a visa to work in the country where the new job is and that's very stressful and the new country is also the UK so Brexit is happening so that's very stressful and then I'm looking it's in London so then I'm looking for apartments in London so that's even more stressful because a studio apartment costs more than my entire flat right now um, many things are very stressful and then I'm also very tired all the time so but the good news is we had um our lab retreat so my my lab group went on retreat um last weekend so friday saturday and sunday and it was actually really really fun this time so somehow we managed to change the budget so up until now they haven't like adjusted the budget for inflation for the last like i guess 80 years i want to say like (laughs) it was definitely when we were trading in deutsche marks because they had a rule that like (laughs) 
Each person for an entire three-day trip, you only got 32 euros worth of food, which you can't feed a person three meals a day for three days for $32. Like, maybe a donut, a donut, a donut, a currywurst, a donut, a donut. Like, <laughs> Breakfast donut, my favorite dinner. It's really hard if you're trying to get any of those meals like through a hotel. Yeah. So up until now, we mostly go to um, youth hostels where the meal is basically like they crack open a can of soup and everything tastes like a can of soup like even if the food doesn't resemble a can of soup it somehow tastes like a can of soup like it has and then the vegetarian option is like here's your can of soup but somebody like fishes out the chunks of like beef and they're like this is vegetarian now (laughs) um and somehow i don't know there was like some magic that happened this year the budget went up slightly there was some like way of doing it and we got to stay in a lovely place um we went to uh gorlitz which is is like very south of germany near the polish border so like go south and go as far east as you can. That was actually also an adventure. Ah, it wasn't then in Saxony, right? I, like I should know where Gerlitz is, but I don't. It's like directly south from here, basically. And in fact, we we accidentally went into Poland for a short time. So we didn't realize we may like... I don't have my passport right now because it's with the, the UK embassy. And at one stage we were in Poland and we were like, there was me and a guy from Hong Kong in the car. And we're like, um guys like we're not supposed to leave this country without our id like we're not we're supposed to have our passports always but we definitely shouldn't be crossing borders like (laughs) (laughs) willy-nilly but then we snuck back in again so i think good thing that they didn't catch you yeah but it was beautiful on the polish side it was really lovely so yeah also pretty much everything is better on the polish side they have better internet they have (gasps) this true so we were in this town which was on the german side and everybody's phones kept on like sending them the messages welcome to Poland because I, I, guys I'm sorry if you're a German but the internet situation with phone reception and any of like any phone stuff is terrible in Germany Germany so, is one of the worst worldwide really <laughs> we were in Germany and like in the center of the city this Gorlitz city and our phones were like you know what this is not working let's just try to like reach out to like the signal from Poland from a different country was stronger than the one in the center of the city yeah and probably also with like higher uh, bandwidth and so on. Yeah, Germany is one of the worst for all sort of like industrialized countries. Um, we always rank like on like the last three places. We pay uh, like a very high price for a very low speed and very bad coverage compared to pretty much every, anyone else, especially in the EU, but also worldwide. Um, yeah, even I remember like, I mean, I came here seven years ago and then internet was also really expensive and terrible in Australia. And then I went back after four years of being in Germany. I was like, how is it better in Australia? Like, I live in Berlin. It's like the world capital. And I'm going to freaking butt end of nowhere, Australia. Like, it's Perth. It's like the most isolated capital city. It's on nice the west coast of Perth. Perth you've, you've never heard of it, guys, because like nobody ever goes to Perth. Um, and I was like, this is this is actually better. It's cheaper and it's better than, than Berlin. But yeah, we love you, Berlin. And Gorlitz was really beautiful. So Gorlitz also has the name Gorlywood. I don't know if you've heard that. It's because um, many films have been filmed there. So um, ah, yeah, the 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 one from Wes Anderson, for example, the yeah, the Grand Buda- Budapest you know. Hotel. Yeah, that one. Hotel there's also Budapest. one called um, the Reader. Nachlesa, the Vorleser in, in German. Yeah. Um, and what was the other one? Oh, Inglorious Bastards. It's also. Oh uh, yeah. So one of the activities they also filmed in Babelsberg, I think, but also went yes. down to Gerlitz. Yeah. 
So one of the things was we actually had to like go around the city and do like a kind of Easter egg hunt of trying to find the oh, sites nice. and then like reenact the scenes from the, yeah, so like climbing up on walls or pretending we're like running away from like, I don't know, yeah. shooting people. I don't know. That was really fun actually. Oh, that's it was, cool. Like, yeah. Yeah. Was good. How are you? Sorry, I'm just. Uh, f- uh, what, did, what did I? I don't. I don't do much anymore these days, apart from like taking care of a baby and being sleepy. Mm. Um, I think my highlight was to <laughs> to go swimming. I think was the highlight of, of my. With last the baby. Thing. With the baby, yeah. Um, he really likes uh, swimming, and now we're teaching him to di- uh, to dive. Um, uh, which dive? feels a little bit mean yeah no, yeah dive yeah underwater mm-hmm. um where first like you just gently pull him under the surface and back up again like you do it with warning like you count down from three and you pour some water over his head and then he like closes his eyes and the mouth because there's water coming and then you pull him under and up again and then immediately say like something nice and like not uh, to like not as if you would um, waterboard him yeah, it's, it's, so he knows he's not being waterboarded yeah so he knows he's not being waterboarded but then uh, like the scary thing is like we're also doing a course like uh, we we went now um without a course there's a place in berlin where they just have like one of these like shallow warm pools mm-hmm. where you can go with the baby um but we do a course and the, the thing that we had to do there was like pull up the baby do like the countdown and like push him under the surface gently take your hands off Put them to your waist and then put them back on the baby and pull him up and then like Whoa. comfort him so that he's like for a, a second or two he's without any hands around him and i think it's scarier for the parents and for the yeah. babies um because they yeah they start a little bit like flapping around but then we did that now also like without the course um and he was quite calm actually like he uh he's getting used to it and next time we're doing the course, there's a guy coming and taking photos i'm really excited for that because then i will reenact like the nirvana cover or whatever yeah, I mean, I, I remember watching this um, TV series, documentary series ages ago. I think The Human Body, it was called. Um, the documentary, it was really cool. It went, it started with, I think, a pregnant woman. And it went all the way through life from conception, like up until aging. So it was kind of showing all these different life stages. And at one point they had this, um, yeah, a montage basically of these babies just like floating <laughs> through water. And he was basically like, yeah, for the first few months of their life, they actually... Um, they're kind of used to being in a liquid environment so they kind of know how to respond and they don't like try to breathe in the air like they actually have this yeah. natural knowledge that they shouldn't yeah they don't swallow the water they don't breathe it uh, in the, and, the water not the air yeah of course and mm. they are yeah they like it's still they get, can get sometimes surprised and there's some kids who hate it but we're very happy that like you and i are super happy with the water and i just signed up for the follow-up course so i think i'll be doing that until he's like properly able to swim on his own would you Which consider putting him in like small fish costumes or like a little mermaid costume? If, he, if he's down for that, yes. And uh, there's mm. this mermaid swimming I've seen where you can put up like a tail, like a mm. fabric tail, and then you can do mermaid swimming. It's one not for babies. It's for like older children and even adults, mostly women. But I, I think I would be happy to do that as well. We have like, we swim in the, the, the pool near work and there's these people who have like one fin like joined their two feet with one mm-hmm. big fin and then they're holding a small oxygen tank in front of them that goes and they just do this like fish swimming throughout the water and it's super beautiful like it's so yeah. smooth but it's also i don't understand what they're doing like are they are they going to be in a movie like we're just what i think it's for fun it's amazing i mean i think yeah it is it is absolutely i think it's it's quite 
it's quite fun. It feels a little bit weird to make it like swimming harder. Like we sort of figured out how to swim efficiently. No, as a that's human. definitely easier. You think so? With like mm. your te- feet like locked in, and mm. then Mercedes and I tried it once where we like one of our friends and I tried it once where we were trying to do this fish swimming where like imagine you lie on your side and then you just like undulate your body. Yeah. And the biggest problem was that the water tends to go up your nose. You have to like really breathe okay. out. But I think with oxygen, like it would be quite. Okay. And then you're basically using your whole body in a continuous motion. There's no like. Hmm. So you're like an eel. You're like an eel or a mermaid. I mean, eel. slightly more romantic is a mermaid, but. To me, it's eel swimming. Okay. <laughs> Should we do the paper of the week? Let's do the paper of the week now. <laughs> the paper of the week and today is my turn paper Wait, do is, is it it's my is turn it? ah shit wow it's um, not my turn paper do it's your turn paper do <laughs> i mean you can go if you want to go no next no, no. week otherwise we get so many angry emails again if like people are used to a certain way yeah. and if we don't give it to them then like all hell no, we should then it. deliberately disrupt it i think it's healthy for people to have change oh, no. Alrighty, my paper i chose a really short one today so it's um efcd is the name of the locust so efcd locust shortens rice maturity duration without yield penalty mm-hmm. bum, bum, bum. so it gets good quicker it gets equally good but faster. Yeah. Not necessarily gooder, but like yeah. as good. As good. As goodly. <laughs> okay, so it's by Jun Fang and Fan Tao Zhang. They're joint first authors. And the corresponding, I think, is Chen Sai Chu. And it came out in PNAS um, on September 10th, so like half a month ago. All right. So I think we know the general problem is feeding the world. Um. Lots of people are coming into the world continuously. Less people are leaving the world. Population is rising. Feeding the world is becoming problematic. And then you add on to this the fact that we can only feed so many people with the land we have. We also happen to be making that land that we have consistently worse, <laughs> continuously worse, by things like the global climate crisis, desertification, um, salinity, erosion, all of these problems that we have kind of created and then cared about for some years and then kind of decided to conveniently forget about and (laughs) move on to the next problem which is also a really big problem so it does deserve our attention but we didn't really solve that problem before but (laughs) it's okay because now there's a bigger thing to be more scared of so it's a good thing we forgot the first problem because we have other problems now yeah i think salinity was like a thing in australia like in the 80s like we were all like shit salinity is really a problem like we didn't care for that yeah, yeah. but i guess you don't have it as much yeah, in but Germany. Our, our thing that we cared for a lot um was the forest die-off like we had big problems in the 70s and 80s that our forests were dying from acid rain and so on acid rain yeah that sounds much more scary than salinity though right yeah it was from Scarier. i think from the industry there was like sulfuric acid and stuff build up in mm. the clouds and then raining down and then killing the trees i guess this one we maybe have actually solved from like using like scrubbers like um yeah, yeah. catalyzers which kind of clean all the stuff before it comes yeah. out yeah but the forest die off apparently like it got better but now there's like some other data that says it's not great again um but i'm i'm <laughs> changing topic no okay so i mean ultimately we're going to need to get more grain or more fruit or more vegetable whatever it is more of that per unit area and Mm -hmm. as i said especially because there's going to be more people but there's going to be less land long term 
And there's kind of two obvious ways we can do it. The first is we can try to do it spatially. So you just have the same size of crop make more fruit or more grain. So like one rice plant now makes, I don't know how much rice makes rice. but I think usually like eight grains and then it makes 16. <laughs> okay, let's say that, that that sounds very disappointing and I hope that's not the case. And I feel ashamed at how little I know about actual <laughs> plants from fruit I eat. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so one way to do it spatially that like in the same space, basically you have now like more grain, but you can also do like temporal manipulations where now instead of having like one growing season per year, you can have two growing seasons per year. And we kind of discussed this on the blog already. So we had an article about pennycress, mm -hmm. which was this potential um, alternative oil crop, which can grow in really cold climate. So then the idea is that you can plant that on the field in winter when you can't be planting soya or maize because it's just too cold for them to grow. So now you've like increased the yield per space based on like yeah, by, adding more time. Yeah, you have like this dead time when you can't really grow anything. And then when once you have crops that grow, then... Um, yeah more more yield per acre yeah um so yeah so as i said like one of the things you can do is have alternative crops which can grow in different times but also you can try and shorten the growing plant time of of your crop so instead of it taking like six months mature if it takes like five and a half months now you've got these extra 15 days where you can maybe get another one in before it becomes too cold yeah that was probably not an example because five and a half months is probably still too long but you know what i mean like if it's like three and three months then you can get it in the summer period instead of having four where you then can't get another one in before the hard yeah. times come yeah and i think with wheat there is like a summer and the winter wheat harvest where they sort of did that already um i wonder if it's on the same field but i know that like this like changing the the harvest times and allows you to yeah just plant more and have more yeah i think you have one variety like one type just grows over the winter and then can be harvested sort of early in the year and then you can sow another crop and then ha have a second harvest in fall um through that so it's a very important technique in agriculture honestly we know very little about agriculture but yeah please run in to tell us how we're wrong oh uh, yeah yeah that's uh <laughs> it's just reminded something that i want to talk about later uh continue please you want to say it now I'm eating chocolate I mean, anyway. Uh, yeah, we can. Uh, it's just about on the topic of people writing in. Like last time, we uh, asked if we have any French listeners, and we have a French listener that Bay. wrote in. And I just wanted to mention that and say hello to uh, Eugene uh, Eugène. I think it's a proper pronunciation in French. Eugène or Eugene in English or uh, Eugen. Eugen, Eugen in German, in German. Um, which also somehow sounds more Australian. Eugen. And <laughs> yeah. you're our favorite listener now. We've um, decided yeah, our favorite French listener or favorite listener period. Um, and he had actually some good follow up for last week's uh, story about natural GMO that I wanted to mention at the top of the show, but we're doing it now. Um, he said, like I asked on Twitter about uh, mm -hmm. whether people would be if they would buy peanuts today. Would they buy non-GMO or GMO peanuts if they just pick them up from the store? And I wanted to say, like, look, they're natural GMO, so obviously all of them are GMO. And he pointed out that, um, yeah, if you just go by by law, then obviously they're not GMO they're not. because yeah. the, the law has a stricter definition than just the presence of transgenes that happened somewhere in the last couple thousand years. Which is kind of our point. Like, the definition by law is kind of made up concerning science. Like, yeah. I mean... It has no bearing on what is actually the physical makeup of the DNA and what science says. 
says. But it be. was a, a very good point, and he had some cool, uh, like he had some some links and some um, sources for for his arguments, which I always appreciate. I think that's a, like so not just, just a practice. listener, but like an informed listener, an informed, listener. a useful informed listener. So thank that's you very so nice. much for the feedback. And um, yeah, if if some of you have any feedback on the things that we sh uh, say here, just reach out to us. Um, pr uh, probably on Twitter is the highest chance that you can get it. Although also on Insta and Facebook. Um, Rude, yeah. Joram says that because he manages the Twitter. You know, it's also like on Insta, I feel like the, the feedback channels are not as... It's messaging. It's the same thing. Yeah, but then no other people can see it. Like with uh, Eugene, he could... Like other people then... They can also comment like on the, the posts and, and then... Eh, whatever. Anyway, okay. yeah, just reach out to us and tell us if we get something wrong or if you have additional information about things that we say. Okay, so we were talking about how to make more food. Yeah. Um, so as you probably all know... Um, Way back in kind of the 50s and 60s, we had this green revolution. So it's been called like now the first green revolution with the idea that we can have a second green revolution. But basically, it was this massive breeding program of all different crop varieties, which aimed at just getting better crops. Um, and a lot of this betterness came from having shorter crops, um, which basically meant that the crops put less energy into growing tall. And all of that energy that they would have used to growing tall, they would put then into their grains. So this is one of the kind of major... Um, contributions yep. but also a few other things so like the way they hold their leaves um related to their height whether they fall over which is called lodging if they fall over um various different things were kind of changed and now our crops are pretty cool and pretty perfect yeah in some ways um so we're talking about rice in this paper and back in this kind of original green gener uh, green revolution there was some rice um, cultivars which were made. They're called IR8, IR20, IR24, IR26. But these were kind of the first generation and they were semi-dwarf, as I said, so they were shorter um, and they had huge yield increases. So they were like really a promising way to get more food from the same numbers of plants, basically. Mm -hmm. um, the downside is that they took a long time to reach maturity so they took 160 days so like half a year basically nearly half a year to reach mm -hmm. maturity and make seeds similarly like later on in the late 70s i think particularly in china there was a lot of effort to building even more of these high yielding um, varieties and then they started to try and get things which were like still high yielding but like they matured a little bit earlier so they no longer had this 160 days but they tried to pull it back mm -hmm. a few more days but there's kind of this like logical um balance that's happening here because the faster it is that a plant goes to seed the less time it has to accumulate carbon which it yeah. does by just having leaves out there photosynthesizing and not necessarily but kind of it makes sense that like the longer you have leaves out there making carbon the more you can store it and the more you can then put in into yeah. your so this is called like a trade-off and it's one of the problems we hit a lot in biology so often in order to improve one trait like let's say insect resistance you then make something else worse so the, yeah. the plant has more tolerance to stress but it's also smaller because it's expending a lot of its energy on um stress or or just simple source sink ratios right like the sources are the leaves that mm -hmm. that uh, accumulate energy from through sunlight and the sinks are usually the fruit or the grains or whatever we harvest and if we make for example a tomato plant that will have double the amount of fruit and half the amount of leaves we will think hey that's great but actually it runs then into the problem of not having enough sort of harvesting organs that can actually get the energy that's then put into the fruit so mm -hmm. also like i guess with the with the dwarfing um that can also be an issue right 
if you have smaller plants, you have less foliage. Mm-hmm. Less foliage is less energy uptake, which means like longer times to ripen or to or less yield. Yeah, but these are often quite, quite complex traits. You can say, okay, the plant is dwarfed so that it's shorter, but it doesn't necessarily mean that just because it's shorter, it has less like leaf area because it can still have like very broad and yeah. small. So there's there's a lot of things that can be involved, but generally there was kind of this trade-off scene where like the the better the yield the longer it takes to get to seed and this is not really what you want as i said you want to have them going turning over as fast as possible so there was more development in the field and then came in something called um ce64 um and this was found to be like an early developing so it had like a shorter time to get to flower and seed Um, and from that there was kind of two hybrids so two just like breeding hybrids and these were the first cultivars which could produce two crops in one year Mm -hmm. so short enough growing season that you can have two growing seasons in the year and since then um, there's been more different lines which have been developed over the years and now from this 160 days originally with the higher yield it's now down to about 100 days which Mm. each time they make these new things it's a really small step it's only like five days or a few days but over time you really get this like decrease where you've now got almost half the growing time which is as i said really super important Okay, so this paper, as I said, looks at a new locus which shortens the rice maturity without having any of that yield penalty. So it's it's kind of objectively better based on this statement in this title, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of cool. So it's called EFCD. Can you guess what the EF stands for? Uh, efficient field. <laughs> it's early flowering. Um, <laughs> it was not I a like lot helpful. Better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's early flowering is the EF and the CD actually stands for complete dominant. Um, So we'll Mm -hmm. come back to that. But EFCD was first found to be like a male sterile um, line and they found that it had this early flowering phenotypes. They got really excited. Um, And then they crossed it into late flowering um, lines. And they did all of this crossing and crossing and crossing, always selecting to make sure that they still have whatever part of the genome makes it have the early flowering. But now you're putting all of those that tiny bit of genome with the early flowering trait into an entire background of another genome. Mm-hmm. And this is called creating um, near interregression lines. So it's where like only that tiny bit is kept and everything else is like the new yeah. the new line, the different line. And what they were crossing into was this late flowering. And the reason they're doing this basically is because they want to show that it's not a complex trait. The fact that it's flowering early is not coming from the background genotype of the plant. It's not coming from all of these different factors interacting. It's just coming from this tiny bit of genome, which hopefully only has a couple of genes on. So then they can Did really they like... Did they already the, the bit of genome at the time? Or is no, that something they only knew then? Or? No, they didn't know. They they had some idea from like like where on the chromosomes it was, just using this kind of standard um, mm-hmm. old-fashioned... I mean, it's not really old-fashioned, it's still used, but like... Um, like the mapping. Exactly, but they didn't have a precise location. They didn't know what yeah. the gene was, so they were just kind of trying to yeah. find out. And again, it could have been multiple genes. It could have been multiple things at multiple different loci, which was contributing. So they did this kind of back-cross, 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 and then they found that even in the background, which has all of the things are this late flowering genotype so all of the dna is late flowering but there's a tiny bit of the genome which comes from this other yeah it now is still flowering early and from that they can also call it then it's dominant because just having that is enough to change the entire plant to to override pretty much the late flowering genetic programming yeah so then they took these kind of um nils this near integration line so this thing which had like just a little bit um of the the efcd 
and they tested it under three different photo period environments, so different parts of China. China's a super huge country, so they just went to different locations. Um, and they found that it always flowered earlier than the parental lines of these later lines. And the difference was like nine to 20 days, which is, is pretty a big difference. Yeah. But also they're using these deliberately late parent lines. So it's, yeah. it's like compared to like yeah, something, something objectively slow. Yeah, yeah. slow. So yeah. it increases the difference. Yeah. So as you as you mentioned, they at this stage they didn't really know what the gene is. So then they did this like genetic stuff to try and find out what actually where the gene was. So they know it's kind of this chunk of, of the chromosome, but you know, depending on how big that chunk is, there can be hundreds or thousands of genes. So they kind of narrowed it down mm-hmm. to a very small region. And in the end they basically had a region which had one gene, um, which was really cool. But unfortunately, that gene also had a small antisense gene, which was going in the different direction. Okay. So um, like on the end of the gene, there wasn't something antisense. And the thought was that this antisense could actually be regulating that one gene. Yeah. Um, and that could be the thing that's affected, not the gene itself. Okay. Yeah. So they had to test for this. Um, they said they were very lucky because they managed to find tDNA insertions in the promoter of the antisense thing because apart from the promoter region and the very start of that antisense, everything else was like on top of the the real gene. Mm-hmm. So if they had made any alterations to the ulti- antisense, they would have also been making alterations to the gene. Yeah. And then you can you can't tell who's who. Yeah, yeah, then you don't know if it's the the um, lack of the gene that you disrupted if there's that problem or the lack of the antisense. Yeah. So, yeah. So they got lucky. this um yeah, insertion in the promoter and also in the first intron of the antisense, which is also just before the the end of the other gene going the other direction. They also made RNAi for the, again, the bit of the antisense, which was not mm-hmm. next to. So RNA interference is just to, to decrease the expression of this antisense transcript. I didn't even know that you could, but yeah, obviously you can do that. Like, and yeah, I always thought antisense is something you do against genes and not against other antisense RNA, but obviously, yeah. Why? Uh, okay, so it's it's running in the antisense direction. It's just like this. Ah, okay. um, and it was designated as a long non-coding um, uh, DNA but they didn't actually know what the function of it was. So just okay. because it's, it's going antisense doesn't okay, necessarily so it wasn't an mean... Okay, so an antisense RNA that would, like, necessarily an antisense RNA that would pull down um, mRNA of a gene. It could be that, but it wasn't uh, clear at the time. The problem is that, like, so there's one full gene going, like, uh, let's say left to right. Yeah. And then there's this antisense going right to left, but it's the antisense is overlapping with... Yeah all of the antisense is overlapping the, the end of the gene, except for the promoter region. Yeah. So it could be that that antisense is actually designed to then control the expression yeah. of that gene or its stability. That can be a real thing, but it's hard to know which. Yeah. Yeah. So they did the this tDNA in, this, in the promoter of the this like antisense guy. Um, they also had RNA and they also made a CRISPR in the promoter. So they had like mm-hmm. these three independent methods. Um, and in all cases, once they started interfering with this this like long non-coding thing, I'm putting kind of inverted commas because it was like the, the original designation, um, then they ended up altering the flowering. So as soon as you like changed it, you got like slower flowering. So they, okay. they lost this early flowering. So this is, I think, some evidence that this is the thing that... Yeah. yeah. Um, they also noticed that some of the the changes that they had previously seen that made this early flowering was not based on changes to the actual coding region of this, this long, I mean, non-coding again in little like yeah. 
Air quotes. Well, air quotes. Um, so it wasn't in like the the sequence, but it was only in the promoter region. Um, and they found that the changes in the promoter, which made it more likely to be early flowering, were changes which actually increased the expression of that antisense guy. Mm-hmm. So they just put the promoter in front of um, like a reporter, a fluorescence reporter. I think luciferase they used. And when they put the promoter from like what they'd previously found to be early flowering, it was sevenfold more. Um, like higher promotion of what was behind mm-hmm. it than if they didn't have um, that cha- those changes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, I mean, this is basically the the idea they've kind of just defined. This is the the locus. This is the gene. Not super sure on the function, but they did some more tests. Okay. So then they put this um, these guys which have the early flowering side by side with the parental varieties, and looked at them under I think nine different environments, but mm-hmm. quite some different environments. And again, they always saw this improvement in flowering, early flowering, but they never saw any yield penalties. So actually in some of the environments, they even found better yield in okay. their early flowering, but like never anything worse. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. So then they were saying, well, what can it be? Like it's it's early flowering, but it's still making as much yield. So it must be basically be doing something better. Like yeah. it's... It must be like more efficient at the carbon uptake of turning the... Like this, the sunlight, the the energy into into carbon of storing that carbon in the seeds, or mm-hmm. like there's many ways, but it has to be more. It has to be better at something, otherwise it wouldn't have that like identical yield or same yield as the late flowering. Yeah, which is exactly right. So it wasn't in the end a carbon, or at least not directly the carbon, but it was a nitrate. So all the nitrogen. So all plants need some form of nitrogen also to grow, and there's actually some studies that suggest that how much like how active photosynthesis is is related to the need for balance between the nitrogen and the mm. carbon so if you actually um reduce the car the nitrogen availability then you get less growth or you get less biomass because this this balance is not right anymore so you have like yeah. nitrogen starvation and like that's why we use fertilizers now yeah. um so basically these plants were better at acquiring nitrogen nitrate and ammonium so two different sources of nitrogen i think they used um radio labeled nitrogen sources but i can't like so um yeah but just for the experiment yeah for the experiment to like see how they took it up so they were better at taking it up and then also there was a whole lot of genes um which would have been changed which were related to nitrogen but then also related to like um photosynthesis which are probably maybe secondary effects where you now have enough um, nitrogen and then therefore you're able to upregulate like all of these things related to photosynthesis and chlorophyll and stuff like that so um in the end they kind of did some more studies and they found like some chromatin change so this is like epigenetics it's like changes to the accessibility of the genes um related to this this gene that's next to the antisense and they think that this might be a hub so the antisense is somehow controlling the gene that it's next to and this is in turn downstream regulating a whole lot of other things but to be honest they didn't really go into the mechanism of that and they said this is kind of something for further studies to yeah. work out like exactly um what's going on there um but one other thing they did do is they looked at all of the known accessions where they have this high yield which then has a slightly earlier than than the other um flowering times or seed time and they found that always the known accessions which have early times also have this positive influence on their EFCD gene. So it's like also unknowingly breeders had actually selected for the positive of this gene. So like we got there by dumb luck or I mean by selecting for it. But now we know that this is probably necessary. Like if you want to have early flowering, you probably have to 
do this. Yeah. And on the other hand, maybe if you manipulate this, you might be able to give it's sufficient to give flower like early yeah. flowering yeah. with with everything else. And basically, the final thing is that um, given that we have this knowledge of exactly where the gene is, what the locus is, um, they said that there's now some new breakthroughs in the last few years um, to increase the yield even more by doing hybrids of two different subspecies of rice. So, you know, the major subspecies of rice is um, Japonica and uh, Indica. So these are the two kind of main varieties which have been sequenced. And they said that they've been making inter-subspecies hybrids, Mm -hmm. which... I don't know if it's a subspecies times a subspecies. It's still not, it's still the same. Anyway, they made these hybrids and this is getting more yield. But the problem is that these hybrids always have delayed flowering. So they're saying, hey, maybe now we can just go in and specifically manipulate this EFCD. And they're like rescue. Instead of going through this really long process of breeding and breeding to try and find it, we can just like put this bit in and then like get this new crop. So yeah. Um, there's a few other un- unanswered things. So, like as, as I said, they they found this increase in the nitrogen uptake, but I'm not sure exactly what conditions they used. I mean, under normal conditions in the field where you're anyway supplying a lot of exogenous nitrogen, I'm not sure how the difference is. What, like, Although, yeah, I think nowadays um, in farming, you try to pretty much match exactly the uptake cap- uh, capacity of yeah. the plant with the nitrogen that you add. So if it's better at taking up nitrogen, you might have more room to add more nitrogen. Yeah, so, I guess the bottleneck is not how much nitrogen you put on it, but it's how much the plant can actually yeah. take out of what you put on. So then maybe and it's a really... you try to, to reduce nitrogen runoff and exactly like if it can take up, I don't know, like five kilograms per, per square meter during a normal year, then you just add that and don't, mm. don't add the 10 because it's more expensive. Nitrogen runoff has lots of other like ecological problems. So I guess yeah, just like a small increase there, um, then can change your like the amount of nitrogen that you give it, and it can take it up more efficiently. As I said, like the the increase was like I don't know around ten days or like like even less in some situations, but this is quite a big progression as in terms of this field. Like a few days at a time is kind of the normal. Yeah. Yeah. So. Cool. Yeah. Anyway, cool. Yeah, that's a uh, that's that's nice. Like uh, this, I just had to think of the the fact that often breeders unknowingly select for the same like for a specific locus uh, over time multiple times um, is something I, I guess that's quite common because breeders usually like nowadays with the precision breeding and new technologies they care more and more for the actual molecular basis for what they're seeing. But for for a very long time, that was just not something that was feasible in a um, reasonable amount of time. So they just didn't care for it. They cared for the traits that they could measure, like they could phenotype the plants and see like more yield, faster growing or whatever they were looking for. But they didn't really look into what's causing it because they didn't really care. They just wanted like to to cross some lines and then or at the time they didn't have life. the tools also to yeah. like easily see. Mm. And but then over time, because many breeders worked in parallel, then you would like get lots of like shorter plants and then when you looked at all of them in comparison you could see that all of them have the same sort of genetic background Mm -hmm. that was selected for multiple times similar to like when you have evolution and you have like a a trait during evolution it comes up multiple times because it's an advantage at multiple different points even though they're not directly related yeah and i guess i glossed over it a bit but um even this at the start they had this trait and then they had to make these near integration lines they had to make these like crossing and crossing and crossing backwards always to like the different parents so like you take the two parents and you cross it 
mum to dad and then you take the offspring and you cross them to something that's like the dad again then like the dad again like always backwards backwards and in the paper they said something about like a a high generation level of of these kind of integration lines um that's years of work that's i mean given that these things are taking like 120 days before they make seeds and you've got to go through the seeds to get these crosses this is like really it's a ton of work yeah yeah it's it's a lot and I kind of just like glossed over it in half a sentence but this is like four years work there just to get these yeah. I don't know how many generations they I think just said high generation level but it's but a I lot I think usually for back crossing you're in the range of like seven to eight generations that you do as a, like a standard in breeding mm. um, so it's like at least three or four years there like. yeah depending on the crop it can yeah in this case it's three or four years and then for other crops it might be even longer um, so yeah if you care for to, to know about um, like the, the plant breeding and how, how long it can take and how new tools like CRISPR can make it faster. And you speak German and you want to do me a favor, then go to the show notes. Um, <laughs> you don't have to speak German. Um, you don't have to speak German, but the video is in German. Um, I, yeah, I created a video for, for work a while ago and it ha entered into a contest and now I'm in the final and now it's about getting um, community interaction. So any comment and any thumbs up on the video um, that we put in the, in the show notes, the link, it's called um, uh, CRISPR in plant breeding or um, CRISPR in der Pflanzenzüchtung, I think is the German title. Um, if you search for that on YouTube or follow the link. Can they um, search for your name as well? Wait, let's uh, put the, the link in the show notes. I think if they also search for my name, there's not that many Jorams around out there. So if you search for Joram and CRISPR, you might also find it. Um, and yeah, so if you would give me there a thumbs up and um, a comment, that would increase my chances of winning the community award, which would be super helpful. But also, yeah, if you if you care for for this like there i made a little experiment with like uh, splattering paint on pieces of paper and showing the back crossing uh, i just um searched on youtube yoram crispo and it was the first thing that came up yeah so. it's literally the first video there um for the fast forward science um contest so that's just as a side note there it touches on some of the things that we talked about uh, about the back crossing and how long it takes and why you do it pretty much to dilute out like all of the mutations or like sometimes it can be just from keeping a specific gene i talk there about random mutagenesis where you introduce lots of mutations in a in a genome until you find like a mutation in the gene that you care for and then you have to cross sort of all the unwanted mutations out through back crosses and it takes forever let's move on to now it is me right now it's me it's me finally it's me it's me it's me favorite plant <laughs> um yes my favorite plant um this week is laurus nobilis yeah. laurel laurel it's from caesar leaf. yeah it's the bay tree or bay leaf um i i uh, thought long and hard for a while what could be my favorite plant i remember i've just been to croatia on holidays and there there are these large trees of of bay bay leaves or bay trees um which i like i know them as like small like bushes um here when you grow them in germany but there if the climate is right they can grow like several meters high and there were like people out there on like wild plants picking bay leaves um because yeah they just grow I like there how everywhere. at the start of the show we're like what have you done i haven't been doing anything you went to fucking croatia that's like two weeks ago or more mm, okay so it's not during the last weekend but yeah but i went to croatia um 
Did we mention that on last podcast? I don't know if we mentioned it. Maybe hey guys, we, did. we have no memory if we mentioned her calling. Right, right in if we mentioned Croatia before. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite bit about your arms holiday experience? Um, I mean, it was quite nice in Croatia. You had so many like different herbs growing outside because the weather was so nice. You had like ro- a rosemary, you had like wild thyme growing, you had the, the bay leaves. Um, then you had it's like, funny because olive from trees like, everywhere. From their point of view, they're like, this is literally all that will grow. Everything else will die. Like you put basil, it like literally you take the pot off it and it immediately wilts and turns to dust, like in a hot <laughs> country. Yeah. Yeah, but in Germany we don't have to have we don't you don't walk around through the German countryside and think like I could eat that. I could put this in my stew. Um What are you talking about? You eat all of the mushrooms, you like eat the I blackberries. Don't eat the mushrooms. I mean you don't because they're covered in fox piss, but like otherwise you would. And radioactive and stuff, I think. Also it's really hard to tell the ones that will kill you. Yeah, exactly. So I don't eat the mushrooms in the wild. Um But so then I looked a little bit about like why is uh Laurel actually interesting? Uh, <laughs> So I did a reverse thing where I was like, I know already why my, that this is my favorite plant. I didn't know yet why. Um, but um, yeah, then I just went to Google Scholar and looked a little bit for the research that's done on it. And uh, I was surprised that it's actually quite an important model species for tree research where they look at no. xylem, um, xylem embolisms and drought stress. Uh, something we talked about. Uh, we had a paper that we presented on the blog we about... Did. About trees dying. Yeah, and there it wasn't um, laurel that they used as their model species, but there are many, many papers about... Uh, Didn't they use pine? I think they used pine. I think they used a type of pine. Um, but in, but there's also many papers on Loris nobilis used as a model for xylem embolism, which is the, the xylem is the tissue that um, uh, conducts the water from the roots to, to upper parts of the plant, to the shoots. Mm-hmm. Um, and if... If the if there's drought stress, then um, there's sort of a sucking uh, force put on the, these xylem tubes, and they can collapse. And mm-hmm. if they collapse, then they can't conduct any more water. So even if then uh, the drought stress is over and there's water again at the roots, it can't reach the leaves anymore, and the trees die, um, which is a big problem. And yeah, and laurel is is used to research that. Um, and yeah, then I have the feeling with um, the the most common paper that you find for any plant is like research done on their essential oils. Like whenever yeah, I have always medicinal bullshit, blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah, essential oils, essential oils. Um, but uh, one of the essential oils in Laurus nobilis is our eucalyptol. It's the most common one of the essential Thieves. oils that it has. Um, but I think my f- my favorite fact about this is something that came up a couple of years ago when uh, US Americans had no idea what bay leaves are and were complaining on Twitter how in a Chipotle there were literal leaves. <laughs> and there were lots of people sharing pictures where like, what the fuck? Why is there an actual leaf in my food? And um, then it turned to, into this whole like thing where people made fun of them for being like these white people who don't know spices, like raiding the world for spices and then not even recognizing them when they're in their food. Um, so I guess like I would use it in a different way. I would think like before I was in Germany, I never used bay leaves because we have chilies. Like we have chilies and we have like coriander and we have tasty spices that you can use. And then you come to Germany and literally the only way people will flavor things is with bay leaves and, and dill. Pepper. Like way too much dill, always dill. But like for me, bay leaf, it's like, 
I never use it because I wouldn't taste it because I'm no, I, 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 I like, have real flavors. <laughs> I like bay leaves. Actually, I think in uh, Mexican cooking and other like middle and uh, uh, like central and South hey American. Hey guys, cooking, if we have any listeners from Mexico, please call in. <laughs> I mean, write in. Um, so they're they're important um, spices. So yeah, yeah. But then like the sort of the, the, the downside of this story is that it might be all made up. It might be people who were propagating a joke and then other people, because there's some some person, sort of the, the first tweet that you find is from somebody who was very self-aware about it being a joke. And it could be that many other people then jumped on in on a joke and other people then got offended about these because they didn't know the context. And then it became okay. like one of classic like social, social media shit shows where everybody's it, angry at everybody. Um but I I liked it. I I liked the screenshots of the tweets where people were just like, well, how the fuck do you not know what a bay leaf is? The coolest thing about Laurel for me, I mean, apparently moths are not supposed to like it. That's mm. useful. I fucking hate moths. War on moths. <laughs> um, in in Italy, when they graduate from the the PhD or the masters, maybe just the PhD, they actually get given this like laurel crown, like mm. Caesar style, and this is objectively the coolest thing. Like this is just. This is so cool. Much better than our stupid hats. Our hats are also cool. You're just jealous because you don't have a hat yet. Uh, I, I'm like the the hat ceremony is one of the things I'm really not looking forward to. Like I'm very happy. You also have to, hu- to hug a, a whole lot of people who you've like never interacted with and definitely not touched in the last five years, and suddenly they all hug you. Yeah, yeah. I if I'm too antisocial. For these sort of things, where I'm suddenly forced to interact with people, um, I think you'll be so happy. I think you'll just be like, "I'm done, guys." The news is that Yoram has started writing his thesis again. It's really exciting. He messaged me this morning. Is like, "Tegan, I didn't know. I'm so dumb. Past Yoram <laughs> wrote so many stupid things. How do I fix this? I need to submit my thesis." Yeah, it's true. Like I, I start like it was. <laughs> it was uh, sleeping for a long time, and now I picked it up again. And on one I mean, hand, you, you made a baby in the process. It's pretty okay. Yeah, and had other jobs and really didn't care for it. But now I, I want to finish this stuff. But yeah, like past Yoram is just so dumb. You know what? If we get 100, uh, how many followers? If we get 2,000 followers on Twitter, we promise that Yoram will finish his thesis. That's going to be <laughs> like, like the worst drop ever is like the thesis drop. It'll be available at the library of the University of Potsdam. So you can go and read that for free for yourself if you no, want if, to. If, if you write me a nice email, I'll send you like a PDF full of boring stuff. And you can send him a PDF filled up with all the spelling mistakes he made or why yeah. he forgot to include ATP synthesis. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to make lots of promises about a very hypothetical thesis at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, I think if we have enough public pressure, like then yeah. you have to do it yeah let's that's see. how shaming works <laughs> let, let, let's see about that but yeah it's just Oops. on one hand like i'm very happy that it shows that i grew as a person like i know more stuff than i knew back then but <laughs> i also i knew very little back then yeah two okay. sides of that coin <laughs> let's come to our, let's get come to our next segment diversity in the class science Okay, so today my non-white male scientist is Janaki Amal. Um, she was born in India. I've just realized that on the Wikipedia article it says British India. Okay. Um, Probably for historical reasons. Yeah, for historical reasons. So she was born in 1897 on my birthday, if that helps clarify anything for anyone. Um, and she died in 1984. <laughs> 
<laughs> the age of 86. Um, so she's really famous for her work on um, sugarcane mostly. So she helped to develop a sweeter variety of sugarcane, which really helped India become self-sufficient in their own production of sugarcane instead of having to rely on sugar imports from um, Indonesia, I think was what they were previously doing. And this is super important. So um, apart from the candy, sugar is obviously was originally like a very important resource to get your hands on. So basically people have either have sugar cane or sugar beet in Europe, I think you yeah. use, which is clearly inferior, but you know what? You don't have the climate for sugar cane. So, um, and so her, her research was focused on um, cytogenics. So um, looking at um, the different chromosome structures and also polyploidy. So this mm-hmm. duplication of um, chromosome number that happens um and she was using this and like different crossing methods to kind of develop these sugar canes. She was also working on other species like eggplant, which is a very important food crop. Um, and she was also playing around later in life with this chemical, uh, I forget his name, cochaline? Cos- Colchicine. Colchicine. So she was really working on trying to like deliberately change the ploidy level um, and create... Um, like polyploid species by just doubling the chromosome numbers. And this is kind of um, an important finding, a very important thing, because actually many of our modern crop species, so things like um, wheat, they have not just diploid, which is like what we consider like the normal, but they have multiple copies of each chromosome. So they're polyploid. They have, they're either triploid, uh, not triploid, tetraploid. I mean, there's some triploid ones, but they have problems. Yeah, I think crocus sativa is like, so um, saffron is the only one, right? So, Generally, if you're triploid, you can't breed. You need to have duplicates of two or you're not going to be able but to be fertile. Also, also, watermelon is um, like the hybrids of the watermelon. The seedless watermelon, I think, is also down to like triploidy. Okay, but then it can't it can't make fertile offspring. Is generally, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think you cross like two parent lines together and then the offspring is then triploid and then you get seedless watermelon, if I remember correctly. But I think it's an odd-numbered chromosome number, which is then infertile and therefore has no seeds and therefore we enjoy seedless watermelon. I don't... If you cross them, then something else has to happen because if you cross them, they wouldn't like... Yeah, yeah, there's like something... um, Then you steal some chromosome. Anyway, so she was developing that. So, I mean, obviously what's really impressive about her is that she was Indian and she, um, in her time, there was obviously a lot of, I mean, in her time, also now, there was a lot of... um, racism let's say that word so she she had this kind of diversity challenge um but even within her own country so she was considered to come from like an inferior caste somehow so again i'm using like air quotes here but so she already struggled in india and she then left india and actually went to the john inner center um Mm. so this is quite a famous um research institute that's in the uk um and she worked there for a few years actually during the time of the second world war so there's like some statements from her about like there's bombs falling and she's hiding under the bed and then the next morning she's like swooping up all the broken glass and like getting back down to work um and actually now at the john inner center there's a scholarship in her name so the janaki amal um scholarship which is supporting people who come from developing or like lower so i don't know how what the correct terming is uh, socioeconomic countries uh, specifically or countries countries yeah. specifically so i guess it's like developing or like um I'm not sure what the real, the politically incorrect, the correct term is, guys. Please I let me know. I think it's um, emerging markets in terms of economy. Yeah, I think it's like economically less developed or something was the or, terminology. Yeah. Anyway, there's there's a um, scholarship now on in her name for attending the John Inner Center. So it basically gives you some money for the program. Um, apart from that, 
So she actually stayed out of um, India for quite some time because of the difficulties being a woman there um, and also being from the different castle, just generally did not enjoy. And then she got invited to come back when she was already quite famous by the actual president or the prime minister. I, I think it must be prime minister. It must be the British system uh, at the time. So they said, hey, come um, come back and, and work. Um, and she has some like kind of impressive things. So she wrote this quite famous book. Um, she co-authored this. She also... Um, I can't find the name now because I'm very unprepared today. Sorry, guys. Um, yeah, so she also got um, the Padma Shri, which is um, one of the, I think it's like the third highest national prize in India. Um, she also got an honorary doctorate from the University of Michigan, um, which is like one of the only, the few female botanists to ever get this. She's also considered like one of the first female botanists in um, uh India and like generally like really emerging and now she has also two flowers named after her so there's a magnolia this really beautiful white magnolia it's magnolia cobus and then Janaki Amal her name and there's also a yellow rose I think which also um, has been given her name um, but generally her work that's really important is that she was working on developing these new species and doing a lot of crosses to try to improve um, crops and then later on in her life, she also became really interested in trying to find out which species were present endemically in India. So she said there's like a lot of value in what we already have. So she was also trying to um, get in contact with the, the local cultures and try and find out what was known and try and get that into like a, a knowledge, like kind mm -hmm. of centralize that knowledge as well. Um, and she also became quite interested in um, environmentalism. So um, yeah, she... Um, was trying to go, like, go against a dam, which she thought would cause like larger impacts. Apart from the rose and the magnolia, I just remember there's an eggplant variety, which is named after her um, as well. Um, what more? Oh, and the final fact, I don't know where I saw it. I can't find it on the Wikipedia now, I don't think. Uh, uh, uh. No, but the final fact that I saw somewhere, and I'm sure I'll include the link, is that in her last years of life... Searching, searching. Okay, she was less obsessed with plants and she was dedicated to try to breed her many cat pets. <laughs> I don't know if that's true because it was only on one of the... Um, uh, I can't find it now. She dedicated the last years of her life apparently to breeding her small collection of, of pet cats to try and like... I don't <laughs> know if she was like selectively breeding or like making like new crosses or just like just having building the collection. Yeah. Because once you have cats like... There, you can't have enough cats. Yeah. Um, Physically impossible. Yeah, so I think she's kind of cool in pretty much every way. Also, there's like a quote from her that says that she doesn't, really, she didn't really want to talk about her personal life, and she was just like, "My work is what will survive." So there's some arguments that maybe her work-life balance wasn't perfect. Um, not just from that, from other things they said she was like super, super dedicated. But um, she sounds like she was an extraordinary scientist and especially even more so in the context. So again, this she was born in 19, uh, 1897, mm. that she achieved so much was yeah, really amazing. Really and she came from what was, as I said, considered an inferior caste. She didn't get married, which again was like a, a strike against her in those times. And still she managed to travel internationally, become huge externally write this um book come back and um be really big in india like just really amazing like a, an amazing history and i hadn't heard of her until the other day cool yeah. thank you 
thank you for bringing that. And now... This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Uh, I, I brought some uh, fun facts. I want to start with a non-fun fact because... Um, yeah, uh, it's always nicer to start with like the negative stuff and then get better and more fun towards the end. Sure. And my first fun fact could have the title of like, what the fuck Australia? <laughs> <laughs> I sent it to you earlier already, but I wanted to mention it here as well. I found, found a story on The Guardian um, where there is a claim, um, uh, an open letter by 75 Australian former and current business figures, including mining engineers and retired geologists, that CO2 is plant food and that climate change isn't real. There is no climate nah. emergency um, and it's directed at the UN and at the EU. Um, it comes at no surprise that like dying industries want to again like fight fight off uh, and and are in denial. Um, but I just want to say it here: CO two is plant food in context of the climate crisis. It's the same as saying like fish live in water, so we shouldn't like help flooded regions. Yeah, or like, people need water to survive, and therefore we should drown them. Like yeah. therefore, like we should just hold their head underwater so they survive. Yeah, like, because it's like why don't you just drink it? Drinking is important. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a bullshit argument. Do you know whose names on the list is Gina Reinhardt there? Because uh, I really I didn't read that f- much further because I had already uh, a high heart rate. And and was angry. Uh, wait, what is her name? Gina Reinhardt. Uh, yeah. She is, right? Now they include Hugh Morgan, a former president of Business Council of Australia, and Ian Plymer, a director on Gina Reinhardt's Roy Hill Holdings Iron Ore Project. So Not she, her, but her director. Yeah. Okay. So people relate, like uh, working with her like in from her surroundings. For those of you playing not in Australia, Gina Reinhardt is the richest person, woman in Australia, maybe the person... And she basically owns a shit ton of our iron ore mines. And as far as I can tell, she's a horrible human being. I'm basing that only on her desire to destroy the environment while simultaneously trying not to pay taxes and constantly yeah. complaining how hard it is to be a mining industry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> um, that's my not so fun fact to start. I, I, um, I promise that from here on out, it's more fun, I think. Oh my god, Gina Reinhardt was born in Perth. That's my city. Get out. <laughs> Stop being born there. <laughs> How dare you be born there like 50 years before me? How dare you? Her net worth is 10 billion yeah. Australian dollars. That's like five euros. It's not that much. <laughs> uh, no, it's 10. <laughs> uh, it I'm would so be fun angry. if we could like crowdfund some German money and then just go over there and buy her all the Actually, stuff. Actually, the, the really the shitty thing, like, so the reason she's she's so rich is because her father was a surveyor. So this is somebody who goes out and looks for land, surveys it, and tries to find valuable land. And he was actually very clever. He was, I don't know if he was like an officially trained botanist, but he had a botanical eye. At least this is a mythology that I've heard. So tell me I'm wrong, guys. Um, but he noticed that a certain species of tree only grew where there was rich iron ore deposits. So he basically just went around, looked for this like tree and then bought the land where the tree was and that was where he got the... So it's it's really cool. Like botany can make you rich. It just happens that like the end product is that now Australia is like a barren wasteland with huge open cut like mining pits. But the the economy, Tegan. The economy. Think about the economy. I know I benefit from the economy. So yeah, she's also like really into buying like other th- resources like cattle farms and 
now she's moved into media, which is always which reassuring. Which is always, yeah, reassuring. If, like, if very rich people suddenly buy media outlets, yeah. it can only get better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you have something fun, Tegan? I have a really cool mention I want to put out. So, um, a couple of days ago, I guess like almost a week ago by the time this comes out, um, Ellen Earhart, who was also at Ellen Air Plant on Instagram. She has two Instagrams. Um, one of them is just her plant collection and one of them is like her, like she's a science journalist. So it's her um, official one. She just released a podcast, which is called Plant Crimes. Mm. Um, and it's super cool. So, so far there's only four um, episodes um, and she just discusses a few different things. So there's one about Joshua trees and like the this big... Um, uh, kerfuffle that came on the internet when Miley Cyrus like sat on a Joshua tree. Do you know about this? So Joshua trees are like these um, basically big succulent trees. Like they're yeah. like a, a big yucca. They have these like massive trunks, right? That are like storing water. Maybe I don't know. They look like a big yucca. They look very dry and deserty to me. Ah, no, then that's maybe a boab mix- you're thinking yeah, of. Yeah, then I'm mixing it up with something else. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, they're they're kind of rare and they're found in this um, Joshua Tree National Park, and they shouldn't be interfered with because they're already a lot of them like are kind of bent over, they're threatened, and people climb on them and then it just like makes them topple and fall over. So, a while back, Miley Cyrus posted a photo on Insta or on on Twitter of her like climbing up one of the trees and being like, "Hey, cool guys!" And there was this huge outrage of like, "Get the shit off my trees! How dare you!" Like, which I mean, it's it's not wrong. Like, I mean, don't be aggressive, but like, she is influencing lots of other people so she shouldn't be doing these kind of like yeah because people are people will copy her shitty behavior um and i think she took it down after a while and it was so this kind of story she was also talking about um a a kidnapping which happened the Lindbergh baby and how pollen could be used to find out who kidnapped people um and there was a final one which was about a very um rare species of i want to say lily now um Mm-hmm. which was stolen from a botanical garden. So like this this plant theft and trying to work out who did it. So it's a really nice, fun podcast. They're quite short. And I think there's only three or maybe four. Um, but you should definitely go and check that out and listen to it. But you should also follow her Instagram, Ellen Airplant and Ellen Airheart. Um, if you find the Ellen Airplant first, it's she links to the other one. Um, so as I said, she's a journalist. And on the Airplant, she also puts just all of her plants in her home. And it's it's a really pretty vibe and like, it's one of those Instagram accounts that kind of makes you happy. It's like she's always seems like really positive on Insta any any time I see her interact with people and her her feed is really beautiful. So um I'll link that, but definitely listen to the podcast. Like yeah. and I it's fun so far and I want there to be more episodes, so show her support. Listen. listen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me guys, I want there to be more. Yeah, and I want Tegan to talk about other crimes than bloody murder crime which is what she usually <laughs> talks about and then I have to listen to that uh, although I don't care for bloody murder yeah, crime you, stuff <laughs> if you like any murder podcasts and you also like plants this is definitely for you yeah and if I don't like murder podcasts but like plants because like, this, this is definitely th- for you yeah because Tell the stuff that you said were like non-bloody like murder cat- things that's that's good for me like I care more about the crime of sitting on a Joshua tree than about the crime of being somebody like clubbed to death with a branch of a Joshua tree. Mm. So that sounds I mean, more like my kind. Cup so of tea. far, somebody died in one out of the three episodes, but it was a baby, and we don't 
there was not a lot of just like it was an accident maybe <laughs> you can't say that we don't care about babies <laughs> well i mean we don't have to go through the story of how it was like viciously like sexually assaulted and then murdered and like it's not yeah. like that traumatic as far as a yeah we're not emotionally attached to that baby we do like some babies we quite like your baby yeah yeah but Good. i mean <laughs> yeah yeah, I have another like more positive story from the Guardian, um, which says that Britain could enjoy 400 billion more flowers if uh, road verges were cut later and less often. Um, there has been a study and some like guidelines that were published now about like the the, the road verges, so the the strips of green between like roads and on roundabouts and all of these areas mm. there um if you sum them all up it's actually quite a lot of land that can be used there for wildlife mm-hmm. and for more diverse plant species but right now for aesthetic reasons they are often cut very often and they're mostly grass and grass is very low in biodiversity um so according to these guidelines that were just published um there is a huge potential to benefit like uh, biodiversity across the uk by having just a different regime of treating these sort of underlooked or overlooked uh, areas of um, plants in the countryside. Mm, cool. So I just found it quite cool. Um, the the article has some of these guidelines laid out. Laid out so have a look. Um, I have one random thing that's not a fact. <laughs> okay. Um, somebody posted something on a Facebook group. This is completely unrelated to science. I would just like to mention that it's a kookaburra. Do you know what a kookaburra is? It's a, a small bird that has a very characteristic sound that it makes, right? It goes like this. <laughs> no, it doesn't go anything like that. It laughs. It yeah. like you should. If you're not from Australia and you don't know this reference, you should just go and YouTube some laughing kookaburras. They sound insane. Um, but they're also they're like a kingfisher. So this you you have mm-hmm. I think in Europe. Um, but bigger. And with kind of meaner looking eyes. Um, and they love to like they're they're quite like friendly i wouldn't say friendly i would say like confident so like if you have a sausage and you're picking it up and you're putting it towards your mouth they will get in between you and you like they will take the the sausage and And i have a really like pleasing memory from when i was in um high school and we went on this camp and part of the camp was that we had to actually do camping and they were trying to teach like 14 year olds how to cook so we all like got um a barbecue and then we got given sticks and some like um matches and some some newspaper and we had and to you fr- were cooking kookaburras we had to <laughs> that's why the name kookaburra because you cook them that's the whole thing um, and so we had to first like build the fire and then we had to like cook some sausages on the fire and there were some girls who like the kookaburras were looking at them and then they kind of like got scared and then the kookaburra just came and like ate every single one of the like the kookaburra would swoop down and like the girls would scream and run away and it was delightful. Honestly, it was delightful. I've never been so happy. Um, nature wins again. Um, this is what happens when you take privileged rich kids into the bush and yeah. expect them to survive. They would not have survived. Um, and I'm only pleased because I did survive. I, I got my sausages. So. Yeah. Ha. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that wasn't a story yet, right? <laughs> my story is worse. I saw a kookaburra that looks like it's mated with a crow. So it's like a black kookaburra, <laughs> which I think I've already mentioned before that crows are evil and intelligent and are going to take over. And now you add like the cunning <laughs> eyes of a kookaburra and that kind of like 
Like crows are evil, but they have like a sense of pride. But kookaburras don't give a fuck. Like <laughs> they don't play by anybody's rules and they're coming for you. Like they can eat snakes, you know? There's like a bird that will eat snakes. A crow won't eat a snake. A crow will like politely bow and move out of the way when a snake comes through. I I have another kookaburra fact um, <laughs> related to the sausages. There's this a thing that went around the internet. I don't know how true that is, but um, Google autocorrects. If you write kookaburra too fat, then it auto, uh, it uh, auto suggests to, to too fat to fly, um, because there was a story what? that there is a bird a sausage addicted kookaburra that's too oh. fat to fly because it became fat on barbecue handouts. So people were actually feeding it sausages, uh, and then it was, at one point it just couldn't get off the ground anymore because it had too many sausages. Mm. Um, and that's literally the only way that we're going to survive. We're going to have to deliberately feed them too much like sausages. So they can't come for all, us while we sleep. All humans become vegetarian because we spend all the meat. We like on sacrifice our sausages to the kookaburras to so that it may be too fat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I have a couple of facts. I wonder which one I will. I, I'll do. I think we're already quite long, so I'll do one more fact, and we end on your cat fact, maybe. My cat fact is really short, so do do. Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe uh, there's one one cool thing um, about uh, sneezing plants. Um, there's on on science news there is an article about sneezing plants that may spread pathogens so the idea is that the plants have on their leaves um, fungus growing Mm. fungal spores and then they have uh, water droplets on them and then there's a physical effect it has nothing uh, only something to do with the with the plant so when two larger drops Merged, and there's a physical force exerted that can push the drop off a very hydrophobic surface. So these leaves are very hydrophobic, and um, so these very like ball-shaped droplets on there, um, they can jump um, mm. several millimeters up, which isn't much. But if with a gust of wind, they could show in a paper that it's enough to carry spores from one plant to another. So this is a way how fungal spores this is kind of can like- reach like healthy plants and infect them through this sort of like plant sneezing from these hydrophobic surfaces on the leaves is this kind of a similar thing to like if you have two magnets and they suddenly like they get close and they suddenly like jump together to try and attract and it's kind of the same thing with the water droplets yeah that's really cool yeah so there's an article there's a short video of of these like droplets colliding and flying through the air um noise yeah so that's sneezing plants okay my cat fact is really stupid are you ready i'm ready Oh my god, Justin Bieber has a cat. <laughs> he has two cats. <laughs> so I was just, I'm sorry, I, I apologize in advance. I was Googling for recent cat news and then that was what came up. And I was like, like, I don't expect the Venn diagrams to overlap. Like that when I'm searching in my own personal pleasure time, when I'm looking through the interwebs for pictures of kittens and news about kittens, that Justin Bieber comes up, but apparently he now bought... Now this was a very good fact about cats, or... <laughs> you deserve that one. <laughs> um, yeah, so he bought two... But he bought these Savannah cats, which are like this these cross... These large ones? Yeah, it's like a cross between a kind of wild cat and a, a normal cat. I don't know, it has like... A normal cat. <laughs> like a tame cat, I guess, a house cat. Um, and it has these like cool patterns, but he spent 30,000 euros, dollars something and i'm not sure if that's per cat or for two cats but he has like a pair of cats and the cats now have like i don't know twelve thousand followers on instagram or 120,000 followers on instagram which yeah screw them yeah i heard <laughs> they're called sushi and tuna which is yeah, really cute they're a little bit large i think and they're one of these ca- cats that uh just need a ton of cat food because they're so large so on top of the thirty-five thousand dollars apparently that he spent 
Um, <laughs> now he's we're going to spend like, all his money on cat food. <laughs> no, like he's probably spending the same amount every month on cat food. Um, but yeah, he's Sushi rich. and tuna. Yeah, that's cute names for cats. They're really cute cats as well, honestly. I did spend like several minutes on the Instagram looking at them. They snuggle. There's a picture of them snuggling. Yara. Yara, they snuggle. Where, where can I find his? Google sushi and tuna. <laughs> I'm not even sorry. Nishnago. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, guys. You made me go to laneygossip.com. Laney is fine. I think it's like... I don't want to accept these cookies, but okay. I take you should accept all... Look, Nishnago. Oh, a cute kitten. Okay. Sorry, guys. Um, That's the end. I think it's time to end now. Yes. Follow us on all I'm of the social media. for this shit. Um, on Instagram and on Facebook, we're at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, we're at Plants Pipettes. We also have a website, which is www.plantsandpipettes.com. And we just wrote a cool article, which actually has interviews from people about things, um, which I'm very proud of, honestly. It felt like I was being a real journalist. Um, and we got a lot of feedback. A really big thanks to um, Nils, I guess is how you say it, and Philippe. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing them right. Um, for giving us some some comments on their recent paper where they looked at how many proteins are in a single mitochondrion. There are 1.4 million proteins in a mitochondria. There that, are 1.4... Uh, that's that's a fact. And it's if, a thing we can't deny. Oh, you're singing a different song. I was thinking like 10 green bottles are hanging on the wall. No, I was uh, I was thinking of 9 million bicycles in Beijing. Is that a, I don't know from that Katie song. From Katie Milua from like early 2000s. Sorry, man. I'm uncultured. <sighs> you swine. All right. Till next time, guys. <laughs> oh, music. And, uh, yeah. Opening and closing music uh, is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thanks, and, Philip. And uh, until next time, goodbye. Bye.